Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Take your seats for just a moment. I'll tell you a quick story. How many people know that we have to testify to what God's doing, amen? And things that may look just random and meaningless are never random and meaningless in the kingdom of God, amen? All right, three of you are awake. We'll work on the rest of you. So uh, Monday I had a meeting here at church. My good, my good friend Brian Uhlenhop, uh, a friend of this house, he uh, texted me a few weeks ago and said, hey, can we meet? I said, sure. And uh, he didn't say what it was about. He, he mentioned a little bit about what it was, but I didn't understand what it was about. I guess that's a more accurate way of putting it. So I met with him, and he said, I'm bringing a friend along. And um, his friend's name is Pat, and they walked in and, and met me on the, the kid's entrance over there, and, and we just sat at the couches and talked. And as soon as his friend Pat walked in, he shook my hand, and he said, wow, the Holy Ghost is here. I said, yes, sir, he is. Yes, sir. He said it twice. And then he said, I told him a little bit about who, who we are. We're Acts Church 214. I explained that, and he's nodding his head, and he's smiling. He's, he's like, you guys get it. You get it. He's like, I studied the book of Acts for years. I, I love it. It's the actions of the church. It's the reaction to what Jesus did. That's who we are. That's who you are. You're, you're, you're carrying out the acts forward. It doesn't stop. We don't stop moving. That's why we're 214. We step forward together. Get it? And he said, I'm not from around this area. I, I, I was here in 1986 for a number of years, and then God just drew me back here recently because I have a message to give the pastors of this area, this region. And I said, okay, okay. And he was carrying a stack of letters with him. He said, these are going to go into the mailbox today to a bunch of pastors and churches around this area. And he had one letter that wasn't in an envelope, and he unfolded it, and he said, if, if you if you're okay with it, I'd like you to be the first that we read this letter to. And as soon as he said first, I'm like, okay. I'll receive that. He said this. He read this to me. Dear pastors, I write each of you to decide this month to teach and equip your members to speak the gospel to their neighbors and pray with their neighbors to be saved, to repent to God. And by confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, the soon coming king, to be born again into a new life, I ask you to motivate your members to visit 20 houses. The 20 neighbors nearest their own home in person, clearly sharing the urgent message of the gospel. I ask you to prepare them to be ready to do this by next May 1. Surely every Christian who knows the truth can speak to 20 households in the spring and throughout the summer. But they will only do this if you teach them to do this and establish it as a mission that all of you will do this and together this spring. The gospel is a message of repentance and a clear understanding that there is a heaven and a hell, that Jesus Christ is the only way a person can be saved from their sins, saved from hell, saved from the wrath of God and the judgments of the last days which have already begun. Pastors, would you please commit to teach and prepare your people to clearly communicate the gospel to their neighbors beginning this May. And I said, 
Yes, Pat, I will. See, what you, what you might not understand about Pat and the story he told me before he read this letter is that back in 1986, for a number of years, he visited 20,000 houses in the Peoria area from the south side all the way up to Forest Hill, went door to door and presented the gospel of Jesus Christ to 20,000 houses. And when I heard that, I knew that this was a man that carried authority because he's not asking us to do something he hasn't done. And I said, Pat, why did you, why did you pick the number 20 as the challenge? And he said, I have no idea. And, and I said, Pat, I think I know why, because you went to 20,000 houses and you're asking that a tithe, a seed be sown to multiply. See, the kingdom of God is all about multiplication. And so, you know, we test every spirit, right? Not every conversation is from the Lord. But in that moment, I knew Pat, he's an apostle. He's gone to 20,000 houses, and, and he's back here. Something in the spirit stirred him up to come back here. Something in the spirit, we were honored enough to be the first letter that he wrote, that he wrote and read. And I, I just, we're already doing this challenge, aren't we? Or we should be. Sometimes we make church so complicated that we forget the message of why we exist. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's but a savior that died for us, that there's hope, there's a future, that this life, that what we can see here is, is not the, big, the most real thing. We're not even living in, the, we're living really in a virtual reality. The real reality is about to be unveiled. It is unveiled. We're seeing pieces of it. And our hearts should cry, come Lord Jesus. Would you, it says in Isaiah, would you rip open the heavens and come down? That's where our hearts need to be, but we need to have the same passion for our neighbors, our coworkers. So I believe the Spirit of God is asking you, each and every person, each student, from the youngest to the oldest, to start putting 20 names for these next few months until we get to May. Because he knew, you know, he, he knew one thing by doing, by going to 20,000 houses, he's like, don't go in the winter. Bad idea. But use the winter to warm your heart, to get ready to have those conversations. Not that you can have conversations tomorrow, don't get me wrong, but when you're going door to door, be, be ready to give an answer. So I think we should all start a list, whether it's on your phone or a notepad in your Bible, target 20 people that the Holy Spirit puts on your mind. Because if you can't share the gospel, if we can't share the gospel, then I don't know what we're doing here. Amen? So I'm challenging myself. I'm challenging you. Here's, here's an opportunity. Let's take 20,000 and reach 200,000 by starting with 20, starting with one. Amen? Get it? Awesome. I love it. God is so good. He's so good. All right, church, go ahead and wrap up your conversations and find your seats so we can jump into what God wants to say to us today. Who here? Is excited to be in the presence of God. Yeah. I just love how God works because um, Pat didn't know and Chris didn't know the word the Lord had given to me for today when that happened on 
Tuesday? Monday. When that happened on Monday, and you'll find out in a little bit how it connects. So God is so faithful to do that. He's so good. He's such a good father. If you're doubting that today, I want to just I want to talk with you after this. I want to encourage you that you have a father who loves you so very much. He loves you so very much. <sighs> okay. All right. I thought I could do it, but I can't. He's like, yeah, baby, been waiting for that my whole life. Take it off. <laughs> it's my husband, if you didn't know. So last Sunday morning, my family and I were driving to church, and we drive fairly early to get here um, to help prepare for what God wants us to do and say, um, whether that's straightening chairs or interceding and praying or um, filling oil diffusers or whatever that looks like. We get here early, and we're driving here from our home in central Peoria, and on the west side of the sky, it was bright blue. It was beautiful, and we commented on it. We were like, oh, look at that blue sky. It's so cool. But then on the east side, it was completely white, Two completely different skies. And as we came down into the city, before we had turned right onto Washington Street, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, look, there's a rainbow, which my first thought was, that's weird. It's not raining and it hasn't rained. And then I went, oh, it's not a rainbow. What is that? And it was this huge pillar of light, had pink and purple and some yellow in it. And I'm like, you guys, look at that. And it was over on the East Peoria side, or it appeared to be over on the East Peoria side. And we're all looking at it. We're like, what is it? What is it? And Chris is driving, and he's like looking. I'm like, stop looking. Stop looking. Keep driving. <laughs> and I tried to take a picture, and you, could, you couldn't get it. And then we turned right onto Washington Street, and we were looking at it, trying to see it through the, through the buildings. And I, I looked back at my kids, and I said, you guys, that's some sort of heavenly light. I just knew, I knew in that moment that there was something very significant about that light. So we get here to church, and about 15 minutes later, I, I'm sitting up here on the stage, and my buddy Andrew, who's got my back back there on media, thanks Andrew, he comes and he sits down next to me. I'm like, Andrew, i got to tell you, we were driving to church, and there was this light. He's like, I know. I saw it too. He said, but when I came here, it was over our church building. And as he's walking on the street with his daughter, McKinley, he sees it and he stops to take a picture of it. And you can hear McKinley say, are you taking a picture? <laughs> and his picture didn't capture it because I don't know that you can always capture heavenly light with an earthly device. But it was so significant. And then Monday night, I'm with a whole bunch of women from our church, and we're doing the bait of Satan. And oh my goodness, we're all going to be set free, and I cannot wait. But... I, I tell the ladies about this light, and two or three of them are like, we know, we saw it too. I'm like, oh, God, you're so good. That's so cool. And I already knew what I was going to preach about. And so I was like, this is just incredible. Fast forward to Tuesday morning, and I had taken my car in to go get new tires on it right down here. And, uh, you know, the place with the tall lady that wears the bikini in the summer, and the she should wear a coat in the winter. I don't know why she doesn't do that. But... <laughs> And uh, we had to get up pretty early to go and pick up my car on Tuesday morning before Chris went to work. So we're driving down, and the sun is just starting to come up. 
Um, it, it was, it was, it had popped up, but it wasn't like up, up, you know. And as I got in my car to drive back home, the sunlight was absolutely astounding. It was astoundingly radiant. Like, so much so that the buildings that it was shining off of looked like they were on fire. And now I'm the one driving going, what is going on? I had to pull over down at the riverfront and stop and just sit in that sunlight for a few minutes and try to capture it on a photo. And you can kind of see it, but it doesn't capture what was happening because it was this light that just took over the city. It was shining so magnificently on our city. It was you know those moments when you're so marked by something and it seems like something like I stand here right now telling you about it and, and I know you're probably like, okay, wow, cool. But it, it literally, it was something I will never forget because it was so powerful and it was the presence of Jesus shining over our church, shining over our city, shining over our lives. And here's the thing I know about light. Where there is light, darkness does not get to exist. It's gone. So as I was preparing for this message, I was sent to Isaiah 60. And I'm going to tie this all together with the light. So keep the light in the back of your mind. Oh, and like 12 more times, I'm not exaggerating, throughout the week, light was just present. We went to breakfast yesterday morning, and we're all sitting in a booth, and my whole family is in the shade, and I'm sitting on the end, and this light is coming through the window, like blinding me. And it was thing after thing after thing after thing that God was just highlighting this to me and saying, do you see my light? Do you see my presence? Do you see my spirit? Do you see what I'm trying to say to you? So I was sent to Isaiah 60. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you have your apps, turn there. I would really suggest that you write a few things down because here's what I know. You'll walk out that door and you'll go get some chips and salsa and you'll be like, I know she said some really good things, but I don't quite remember what it was. So if the Holy Spirit prompts you, write something down and then you can go back this week and you can reflect on it. So Isaiah's prophecy in the in the chapter 60 and 61 is about the first and the second coming of Jesus. We know about the first coming of Jesus, right, when he came as a baby, but there's still a second time that Jesus is coming back that is still to come. So this this chapter is also about the world evangelism that will take place in between those two time periods, in in between the time that Jesus first came and the second time that he came. It is also about the glory of the Lord that is coming upon us as he's preparing a new heaven and a new earth. And we don't have time to read the whole thing right now, but I want to highlight some certain parts. So starting in in Isaiah 60, rise up in splendor and be radiant for your light has dawned and Yahweh's glory now streams from you. Look carefully. Darkness blankets the earth and thick gloom covers the nations, but Yahweh arises upon you and the brightness of his glory appears over you. This was already in my notes before Sunday and Tuesday and all the times after it happened. 
Nations will be attracted to your radiant light and kings to the sunrise glory of your new day. Lift up your eyes higher. Look all around you and believe for your sons are returning from far away. Can I get an amen on that one? And your daughters are being tenderly carried home. Watch as they all gather together, eager to come back to you. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about his people. He's talking about the church. And he's talking about us as individuals. Then you will understand and be radiant. Your heart will be thrilled and will swell with joy. The fullness of the sea will flow to you, and the wealth of nations will be transferred to you. Then Isaiah 60 goes on in verses 6 through 18 to describe that what is coming as the world is evangelized by the church, which is so cool considering what Chris just shared with us. And then it talks about what takes place as the new heaven and the new earth are established, what is still to come. And chapter 60 ends like this, and he's prophesying about the new heaven and the new earth. It says, the sun will no longer be needed to brighten the day, nor the moon to shine at night, for Yahweh will be your unfailing light. So right now, his presence is coming to us in the natural through the sunshine, through heavenly light, but someday we won't need that because we will have the actual light of the world shining upon us. There will be no more sunsets or new moons, for Yahweh will be your everlasting light, and your days, come on, your days of sadness will be over. All your people will be righteous and will permanently possess the land. I planted them there as a tender sapling, the work of my own hands to display my glory. I will multiply the least of you into a thousand and the weakest one into a mighty nation. I am Yahweh, and when the right time comes, I will accomplish it swiftly. If you have an, no, not if you have an opportunity. Actually, just do it. Read all of Isaiah 60 this week. It is so profound and beautiful and powerful. Just read it. If you have to read it five times, read it five times. There's so much in there that will encourage you and bless your heart. Okay, so stick with me because there's a reason I want to walk through all of this, okay? We know that Jesus comes to earth twice. The first time's already happened, and the second time has, is still to come. And we're in this in-between time of his first and his second coming. We're in the era of evangelizing the world. We are. See, the church, God's people, have been given a mandate And a responsibility to be the ones to share the gospel with the world in that in-between time. It kind of changes the way we think of the word mandate, doesn't it? I mean, I wonder, we can be so quick to accept man's mandate, but so quick to ignore the mandate that Jesus gave us that were his last words before he went to heaven, his very last words, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we're over here like, well, they told me to do it, so I'm just going to do it. And Jesus is like, I told you to do something too. 
Mark, eight, Mark 16 says this. Jesus said to them, this is right before he goes to heaven, as you go into all the world, preach openly the wonderful news of the gospel to the entire human race. Don't leave anybody out. Don't leave out the neighbor that you're kind of freaked out of. Don't leave out the person that you think already knows. Whoever believes the good news and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe the good news will be condemned. And these miracle signs will accompany those who believe. They will drive out demons in the power of my name. They will speak in tongues. They will be supernaturally protected from snakes, thank God for that, and from drinking anything poisonous, and they will lay hands on sick and heal them. My sister Heidi's wrist was healed this week. Last Friday, she said, could you pray for me because I, I, I'm going to need surgery. The doctor said I need surgery. And this past Friday, she said, look at my wrist. It's, it's being healed. That's what God is doing. The miraculous signs that God is doing to show us what he's asking us to do. So this is that time right now. We're living in it. Openly openly preaching the good news, seeing healings take place because we're bold enough to ask for it. We're standing in her kitchen last Friday night with a bunch of people, and and she's like, hey, guys, before we eat, could you guys just lay your hands on me and pray for me about this? Because I I really don't want to have to have surgery. She was bold enough to ask for it, to say, here's a need. Here's what I need. Now, can you step in and pray over this for me? See, Isaiah 60 is revealing to us God's covenant with us with his church, with his people. He's saying the church will be enlightened. The church will be shown upon. The church will be enlarged. Not for the sake of building up our own success. Not for the sake of this church becoming well-known or bigger. None of that matters. It is all for the purpose of evangelizing a world to know the salvation of Jesus. And we know that according to Isaiah 2 and also the prophet Micah, that in the end days, in the last days, the church will be at the top of the mountain, not running scared in the shadows. If you see a church running scared in the shadows, they are not, uh, they are not walking in the mandate that God has given them. Micah 4.1 says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of all the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills and the people from all over the world will stream there to worship. I believe we right now are in preparation for those days. We don't know the exact time, but we are able to discern the seasons. Just like John the Baptist, this is where this whole series came from first, He was the first, the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament apostle. Just as Zechariah, his father, was able to discern the times. See, Zechariah did not know for certain when the angel came to him, he did not know for certain that his son would be used like the angel told him he would be. He did not know for certain that Messiah would be present in their lifetime. Even John didn't know that. He sent his disciples to say, Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for? But Zechariah and John both had the spirit of God upon them. And Zechariah was able to take hold of what he was discerning, what the spirit of God was speaking to him. 
And he gave this prophecy over his son. Look at this. Luke 1, 76 says this. He's prophesying to his his newborn son, his eight-day-old son. He says, and to you I prophesy, my little son. You will be known as the prophet of the Most High. You will be a forerunner going before the face of Lord Yahweh to prepare hearts to embrace his ways. You will preach to his people the revelation of salvation, the cancellation of all of our sins to bring us back to God. The splendor light of heaven's glorious sunrise is about to break upon us in holy visitation. All because the merciful heart of our God is so very tender. The word from heaven will come to us with dazzling light to shine upon those who live in darkness near death's dark shadow. And he will illuminate the path that leads to the way of peace. Zechariah was prophesying the light. Jesus was about to come. And his son would prepare the way. His son would prepare people's hearts for that to happen. And I believe that we are living in those days right now, leading up to the second coming of Jesus. Just like John was living in the days leading up to the first coming of Jesus, we are the Johns of today. And the spiritual light of Jesus is upon us. We cannot deny it. I believe that these physical lights that I was seeing all week were signs of what he is doing, what he wants to do in and through us. And just like Zechariah, we don't know for certain, but we can discern the days and the times and the seasons. And we have to respond to the call, just like Zechariah did and just like John did. See, we are called now to be the messengers. We are called to be the voices shouting in the wilderness, preparing the way for Jesus to come back and reign on earth. But do you know what I was thinking of this week? I think that this time there's an even greater urgency because this is the end game. When Jesus came the first time, he opened the door. Right? He opened the door for many to walk through into salvation in him. But when he comes again, he is closing the door forever to sin and death, but also to eternity. So for those who choose to spend eternity with him, those who choose him, they will live in eternity with him forever. But those who didn't, they don't get another chance. Their eternity will be spent in torment and worse, isolation away forever from the Father. So do you see the difference? Do you see the urgency? Do you see that this time, this is the end game? So why us? Why are we called to this? Let me show you. This is Zechariah again prophesying um, over his son, Luke 1. He says, he will go before the Lord as a forerunner with the same power and anointing as Elijah the prophet. He will be instrumental in turning the hearts of fathers in tenderness back to their children and the hearts of disobedient back to the wisdom of their righteous fathers. And he will prepare a united people who are ready for the Lord's appearing. 
So John is compared to Elijah, the great prophet Elijah. He was one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. But this angel, I said it was Zechariah. It's not, it's the angel. The angel is telling Zechariah that John will have that very same spirit. He said, John will be like Elijah with the same power and anointing upon him. But then look what Jesus says. Jesus is always like, cool, let me take it up a notch. Matthew 11. Now, while John the baptizer was in prison, he had heard all about the wonderful deeds of Christ. So he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him this question. Are you really the one the prophet said would come or should we keep waiting for another one? Even John had questions. Jesus answered them and said, give John this report. The blind see again, the crippled walk, lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised back to life, and the poor and the broken now hear of the hope of salvation. And tell John that the blessing of heaven comes to those who are not offended over me. As John's disciples were leaving. Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. I can imagine the disciples were like, oh, we actually want to hear what he has to say. <laughs> Jesus said, what kind of a man did you see when you went out into the wilderness? Did you expect to see a man who would be easily intimidated? Who was he? Did you expect to see a man decked out in the splendid fashion of the day? Those who wear fancy clothes live like kings in palaces. Or did you encounter a true prophet out in the lonely wilderness? Yes, John was a prophet like those of the past, but he is even more than that. He was a fulfillment of this scripture, and I'm going to skip down. This is what he says. This is what I want you to get, okay? For I tell you the truth, throughout history, there has never been a man who surpasses John the baptizer. Yet the least of those who now experience the kingdom of heaven will become even greater than he. That is all of you. That is me. For the moment John stepped onto the scene until now, the realm of heaven's kingdom is bursting forth and passionate people have taken hold of its power. We, we are those passionate people that Jesus is talking about. He's saying the least of us will be even greater than John the baptizer who had the spirit of Elijah, power and anointing on him. So John was a forerunner, but he had to make a choice to be that. No one forced him to do it. It required something of him. It actually required everything of him. And we are the Johns. We are called to be the Johns for the second coming of Jesus. And it is time we stop messing around and we make a choice to be. So over the holidays, my family and I went to Florida. And some of you, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard Chris tell this story. We had rented a car, and we, we got a Toyota Avalon. And it was sitting in our garage. And, and long story short, if you want to hear the whole thing, you can go listen to the first week of first. Um, but the car ended up with a major oil leak. In fact, an oil leak that was so bad that the car had no oil left in it. So we were able to exchange it out at an airport of few hours from here on our way to Florida, and we were given a forerunner 
Now, this was super symbolic to us because we had been talking about this series first for several weeks, maybe six weeks, and, and, and we had been talking about this term forerunner. I mean, we had talked about it a lot. And then we get given a car that is called Forerunner. And I love this. I text my friend Rochelle, and I'm like, you are not going to believe this. We got a car called Forerunner. And she was like, what? And then she said, you know, the prophetic is all around us if we just stop and notice it. But then something else happened as we drove. See, we drove about 2,500 miles in that Forerunner all the way down to Florida, around Florida, and then back up to Illinois. And as we were driving, we began to see Forerunners everywhere. Like there were hundreds of them on the roads. And what happened is something called RAS or the reticular activating system. And the reticular activating system is a bundle of nerves at our brain stem that filters out unnecessary information so that the important stuff gets through. So all of a sudden our, our, our brain was going, oh, forerunner and we were noticing all of the forerunners. Our brain was saying, this is important. Focus on it. But see, while there were dozens and dozens and dozens of forerunners on the roads, am I right, Bennett? Like, it was like every few seconds, there's a forerunner. It was like, we couldn't not say it. <laughs> While there were so many other forerunners on the roads, there was a key difference from the one we were driving. See, the one we had had us inside of it. The one we had was taking us to the destination that we needed to go to. It was taking us to the correct destination. If we'd have hopped in one of those other forerunners, we might have gone to Maine or Texas or Timbuktu. I don't know. We were supposed to go to Florida. And that's where our forerunner took us, with us inside of it. And see, in John the Baptizer's day, there were a lot of other people who were also preparing the way for the Messiah to come. They knew that they were expecting a Messiah. This wasn't a new concept to them. There was even one sect of Jewish people, if you want to think of it today as kind of like our denominations, okay? There was one sect that was called the Essenes. And the Essenes had been declaring the coming of a Messiah for hundreds of years. It was their thing. But there was a major difference. See, many of the other people that were proclaiming this were focused on the outside, the outside purity of a person. The rituals that kept them looking pious and perfect on the outside. The complete abstinence from anything that would dirty their image. They were known as, the Essenes were actually known as the keepers of purity. There were even people that were, that were doing immersions, baptisms in water that they believed was purified because it was a part of this purification process to have this perfect image before God. And the whole focus was on the outward body. Then John comes along, and he comes from the wilderness, and he eats locusts, and he wears animal hair. And I'm sure they thought he was, well, you can imagine what they thought. 
And John comes with an entirely different message. He says, it's about what's inside. It's about the heart condition. And his father, Zechariah, had even preemptively spoke this over him when he said this, you will be a forerunner going before the face of Lord Yahweh to prepare hearts to embrace his way. Listen very carefully to the words of your fathers and your mothers, whether it be your natural father and mother or a spiritual father and mother, because so often God speaks through them to you. And if you discount it because you think they're too old or not cool enough, you may be missing what the Spirit of God wants to say to you. So John comes and he's saying, your sins must be washed clean. And that comes through repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now, this was a new concept to them. Because, see, forgiveness of sins up to this point had been through sacrificial offerings of animals and rituals performed by high priests. So this was entirely different. But John is preparing them for what is about to come. See, because the sacrificial lamb of God is about to come and change the whole scene. And John's preparing them for that. Jesus even validates this whole washing of the outside versus the inside in Matthew when he tells the religious Jew, the religious Jews, he says, Great sorrow awaits you, religious scholars and Pharisees frauds and impostures. If we pastors talked the way Jesus or John the Baptist talked today, Jesus goes on to say, you are like one who will only wipe clean the outside of a cup or bowl, leaving the inside filthy. You are foolish to ignore the greed and self-indulgence that live like germs within you. You are blind to your evil. Shouldn't the one who cleans the outside also be concerned with cleaning the inside? You need to have more than clean dishes. You need clean hearts. John knew that his message that he was to carry had to be different than what others carried. His had to be about heart change, about confession of sin and repentance. And I cannot wait for next week because my bro Ike has a word on sin and repentance, but don't be scared of it because I've heard a taste and it's awesome. See, the message that John as a forerunner carried would take people to the correct de destination, to a destination of freedom. And the Lord today, right now, in this very moment, is calling all forerunners. See, we've been placed here for such a time as this to prepare the way for his coming. We have been called to be the ones to evangelize the earth. We've been called to evangelize and tell people, you have a choice. You can choose Jesus. A few months ago, um... Someone spoke a word over Chris and myself, and they said, you are to sound the clarion call. And to be honest, I was like, I kind of know what that means, but I really don't fully understand that. So we looked it up, and clarion call is a strongly expressed request for action. 
So that is what I'm doing today. I am sounding a clarion call to each and every single one of you and to myself to say this is our time. This is our time to change the lives and eternities of the people around us. It is our mandate. What if we are the last generation on this assignment? What if it's us? What if no one is coming after us? What if we are someone's last opportunity to hear about and choose Jesus? But see, becoming a forerunner is a choice. You have been given a mandate, but you also have to choose to obey it. And becoming a forerunner will require something of you. When I first wrote this down, I put, what does it mean to be a forerunner? And I felt the Holy Spirit say, no, not what does it mean, what does it require of you? It required a lot of John. And I stand up here right now telling you it will require a lot of you too. So there are a few things that I felt like the Lord showed me are required if we accept this mandate. These are in no way all of them, but these are the ones that the Lord highlighted to me. And so I want to share them with you. And these are ones you should write down. Get out your phone. Open a text. I know you all have it. Text it to yourself. Number one, if you choose to be a forerunner, it doesn't get to be about you, ever. John 3 says, you have heard me tell you that I am not the Messiah. This is John the baptizer speaking. He says, but certainly I am the messenger sent ahead of him. He is the bridegroom and the bride belongs to him. I am the friend of the bridegroom, listen, who stands nearby and listens with great joy to the bridegroom's voice. Because of his words, my joy is complete and overflows. It is necessary for him to increase and for me to decrease. It doesn't get to be about you. Too too many of us for far too long have made our faith walks about us and not about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Number two, we must recognize the mandate that we have been given. We read this earlier, but I'm going to repeat it. Jesus said, throughout history, there was never a man as great as John, yet those of you who now walk in God's kingdom realm, though they appear, though you appear to be insignificant, though you may feel insignificant, will become even greater than he. We're up to bat. There's a game. And we're up to bat. It's our turn. You can't be a forerunner if you're sitting quietly in the stands. You can't actually even be a forerunner if you're sitting loudly in the stands. You actually might be causing the one who is being the forerunner to not be able to fulfill the call of God on them because of your loud shouting from the stands. Number three, we must not do the things that are assumed of us, but obey obey the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
Rochelle gave such an incredible word last week on obedience. I would highly suggest if you didn't hear it, or maybe if you did and you need to hear it again, go listen to it. It was, it was really powerful. See, John recognized the task that had been assigned to him, but it was entirely different than what everyone assumed his life would be like. You have to think of this. John's parents were very old, and they had not been able to have children. So when, when John comes on the scene, everybody is like, wow, a baby for Zachariah and Elizabeth. This is amazing. And people already had all of these assumptions about what he would, what he would be. They assumed his name would be Zechariah. His name was John. They assumed he would follow after his father in the temple duties. He lived in the wilderness and dressed like a wild man. All of these assumptions that they had of him, he was like, nope, sorry. I know what God has called me to do. So he stepped outside of all the assumptions of everyone in his life, and he obeyed the voice of the Holy Spirit. Number four, we must not be swayed by worldly thoughts and ideas. If you want to be a forerunner, you have to leave behind everything that the world says is important. 1 Timothy 4, this is um, Paul speaking, and I'm pretty sure John the Baptist would have agreed with him. He said, the Holy Spirit has explicitly revealed at the end of this age, right now, in 2022, many will depart from the true faith one after another, devoting themselves to spirits of deception and following demon-inspired revelations and theories. Hypocritical liars will deceive many, and their consciences won't bother them at all. Church, we cannot be swayed by the world's views. And yet, sometimes all it takes is one click on Instagram. And we read one thing that someone's posted, and we go, huh, maybe the Bible doesn't really say that. And we're swayed from the truth. To follow that up, number five is we must be unoffended by the truth. This should not offend us. At this point of John's life, he's in prison. And Jesus has sent two of his disciples to find, to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? We read that earlier. And Jesus tells them, tell John all of this stuff. And then Jesus speaks to them. We've also read this, but I want to repeat it to you from Luke 7. He said, what kind of man did you expect to see out in the wilderness? Did you expect to see a man who would be easily influenced and shaken by the shifting opinions of others? We must not let non-truth sway us, and we must, be, we must not be offended by the truth. It's absolutely crucial to being a forerunner. 
There's this phrase right now, actually a couple, but one in particular that I keep hearing a, a lot. Um, it's really popular in the world, but it's actually really popular with Christians too. It's, this is my truth. There is only one truth. He is a person, and his name is Jesus. And if you are following your truth, you are following the devil. You are being deceived by the one who is the father of all lies. So if you are saying that, if you have said that, there is grace and mercy and forgiveness, but you need to repent of that today and you need to never say it again. It is not your truth. It is the truth and his name is Jesus. See, we must stop being offended by truth and start defending truth. Number six, if you want to be a forerunner, you have to train as a forerunner. We can't be stagnant and expect to run our race well. We have to be disciplined. Being a forerunner requires that we train and be disciplined. I call them the strongest people I know. They're back there somewhere. Ashton, Carson, Ben. They train every day. Right, guys? Every day. You don't miss a day, right? Carson, do you ever miss a day training? Sundays. Rest. A day of rest. You made my point even better. Thank you. She expects, she knows that in order to run her race well, she has to train. As I was looking, um, Googling forerunner to see what would pop up, this came up. A Garmin forerunner watch. This is what the description said. Designed to accurately measure distance, speed, heart rate, time, altitude, and pace for athletes in training. And I love that it says training status. What does that say? What does it say? Productive. Productive. See, we have these things in our lives that tell us, like our Garmin forerunner, that tell us, are we being productive in this training as forerunners? Or are we stagnant? I bet if you wear that watch and you're not training, your watch will tell you that. It might say lazy, <laughs> get off your butt, unproductive. First Corinthians says this, this is Paul again speaking to the Corinthian church. He says, isn't it obvious that all runners on the racetrack keep on running to win, but only one received the victor's prize, yet each one of you must run the race to be victorious. A true athlete will be disciplined in every respect. Practicing constant self-control in order to win a laurel wreath that quickly withers. But we run our race to win a victor's crown that will last forever. For that reason, I don't run just for exercise or box like one throwing aimless punches, but I train like a champion athlete. I subdue my body and get it under my control so that after preaching the good news to others, I myself won't be disqualified. You will quit as a forerunner, if you don't train. I know, 
because I've almost quit many, many, many times. God won't use your undisciplined life. He won't. If you go and spend your downtime watching Netflix, God will not use you the way he could use you. And you could put anything else in there that steals your time. I'm not saying don't ever watch Netflix, okay? Don't send me an email about that. I'm saying your disciplines dictate how often and how God is going to use you. Number seven, we're almost done. It will probably require a great sacrifice, and we must be willing to lose everything. In Matthew 14, we read about how John is beheaded at the command of Herod. Herod was Herod Antipas. He was known as a uh, king Herod in some of scripture. He actually wasn't a king, but he thought he was. And um, there's a lot of that going around. Um, he was perverse. He was an evil governmental leader. And John called him out on his crap. John said, Why are you sleeping with this person? John called him out on it. John knew the risk. He knew it. But he didn't let the risk keep him from calling out sin and calling people to repentance. John ends up getting his head chopped off because Herod throws a party and in a drunken stupor, his wife's daughter does this exotic dance for him and it pleases him greatly. So he says, stupidly, what do you want? Ask anything of me and I'll give it to you. And she says, at the request of her mother, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Herod actually didn't want to go through with it, but he did. John lost his head. And I would think that sometimes most of us aren't willing to lose our comfy place on the couch. So what are you willing to sacrifice? Because being a forerunner, it might cost you everything. But you'll also receive everything. There's no greater joy than to know that you've run the race that God has set before you, that you have given people the opportunity to experience freedom and life with him forever. Is that willing? Are you willing to risk a little of your pride to go knock on a neighbor's door, to talk to a buddy at work, to invite a friend to church, to say, hey, can I pray for you? I notice you're really struggling. Can I pray for you? It doesn't have to be eloquent. It doesn't have to be big words. In fact, smaller, shorter, easier words to understand are far, far better. Number eight, we must be visible. See, being a forerunner doesn't work if we stay in our safe homes and safe circles, safe friend groups, and if we stay obscure. It doesn't work. Forerunner is out ahead, preparing the way. John baptized people in the Jordan River, and the Jordan River was a very prominent place in the region. It was very uh, purposeful. 
and meaningful to the Jews because it's where they had crossed and stepped into the promised land. John went right back to that place and he said, in the open where everyone could hear him, he began to preach something that was completely opposite of what they had heard for hundreds and hundreds of years. To anyone who would listen. Matthew 5 says this, this is Jesus talking and he says, your lives light up the world. There's that light again. For how can you hide a city that stands on a hilltop? And who would light a lamp and then hide it in an obscure place? You are not meant to be obscure. Instead, it's placed where everyone in the house can benefit from its light. So don't hide your light. Let it shine brightly before others so that your commendable works will shine as light upon them, and then they will give their praise to your Father in heaven. God is shining, physically shining his light upon us. The light of Jesus, the natural light that he created, and he is calling us into this role as forerunners. You and me. This is the mandate. This is the ask. This is the clarion call that I have been asked to give you today. Will you respond to it? Will you say, Jesus, I'm terrified to do this, but I will obey. And God will blow your socks off. He really will. Would you stand up on your feet? Father God, we know your presence is here with us. We know that you are calling us into something we've never done before. You're calling us out of our comfort. You're calling us out of the darkness. You're calling us into the light. You are, you are shining an actual light over our building, over our lives. Jesus, I pray this week that as we walk into our different situations, that we would respond to this call. We would respond to this clarion call, this urgent need to act so that so many others can know you, can spend eternity with you. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name.